Let's take our Bibles and turn to the book of 2 Corinthians. And today we're going to look at another section of 2 Corinthians. Two weeks ago, if you joined us online, you know that we dealt with the latter part of chapter 4 and a large part of chapter 5 of 2 Corinthians. And we're going to continue in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 today. We're going to read verse 7, and then we're going to read verses 9 through 15, which will serve as the basis for the morning message. I will be reading when I get to the reading from the New American Standard Bible. When Americans stood on the eve of 2018, an astonishing statistic emerged as to what people were looking forward to in the new year. This staggering statistic said only one-third of American adults year, and it was indicated by the fact they had set some goals for their lives. Only one-third. That's surprising. Fast forward two years, when that same set of Americans were perched on the threshold of 2020, and things had changed dramatically. In fact, 84% of Americans believed 2020 was going to be a better year. A woman who's a social scientist, her name, Zoya Gervis, did a scientific study, statistically accurate, to determine what those goals were. Number one goal was to get your finances in order. That's a great goal, isn't it? The second really is like the flip side of the first, get out of debt. That's the first place to go, by the way, from a Bible point of view, in order to get your finances in order. The third most popular goal was learning to do something new. That's a good goal to have going into another year. The fourth thing had to do with getting organized in every area of your life, not simply in the financial area. The fifth thing was to buy a house. I know a family in our church who just went into their new home last week. They've been looking forward to their newlywed, and they got to go into their new home. That goal was realized by that couple. The sixth thing was to exercise. Do I get an amen on that one? Right? To exercise. And the last thing was, and I think of all of them, this is perhaps the most near and dear to my own heart, is to spend more time with friends and family. COVID-19 has thrown a wet blanket, I'm sure, on many millions of Americans who had optimism going in to 2020. When you are unable any longer to achieve your financial goals because of restricted income or uncertainty of your investments, and when you no longer can go to the gym to work out, and isolation from friends and family have become the norm, it's hard to remain optimistic, isn't it, about this year? 
But the good news for us is that we who know Jesus Christ are men and women who have the benefit of a goal that is within our reach. One overarching goal. And by the way, it's the only goal that matters in your life or anyone else's matter. Life, I'd say that the only goal that matters. And by the way, it makes all these other goals achievable if you get this first one right. We're looking at this passage of Scripture. So let's look at verse 7 of 2 Corinthians 5. It says, For we walk by faith, not by sight. And look down at verse 9. We already studied verse 8 previously. Therefore also we have as our ambition, whether at home or absent, to be pleasing to Him. The NIV, I believe, translates this verse 9 in this fashion. It says, we make it our goal to please the Lord. This is that goal if you are aiming in the direction of this goal and you are taking the necessary steps which are prescribed in this passage of Scripture, you will be a person who will be successful in the achievement of that goal which informs all other goals that you might come up with for your life. Verse 10 says, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ that each one may be recompensed for his deeds in the body according to what he has done, whether good or or bad. Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade men, but we are made manifest to God, and I hope that we are made manifest also in your consciences. We are not, again, commending ourselves to you, but are giving you an occasion to be proud of us, that you may have an answer to those who take pride in appearance and not in heart. Allow me to pause here just a moment. To whom was Paul referring when he talked about those who take pride in appearance rather than pride in the heart. There was a contingency of critics in the Corinthian church who were highly opposed to Paul. They just did not like him. And Paul says that he was not very good at public speaking. He was long-winded. I'm long-winded, obviously. But he was so long-winded as he was preaching and teaching one night. He was on a second-story level. There was a young man whose name is Eutychus sitting in a windowsill, and he fell asleep, and in his sleep he fell off to his death. Well, the good news is that Paul went down, and by the power of the Spirit of God, he was raised to life. He was resuscitated. That's awesome. But Paul was criticized for his speech. He was not the most captivating speaker. He was not the most appealing person to look at either. He doesn't go into great detail, but he gives strong suggestion that there was something wrong with his eyes, probably the result of a disease he contracted in Asia Minor in the region of Galatia, and it disfigured him. It made it hard to look at him. We don't know exactly the nature of that illness, but that's probably what he meant when he said, you've put up with me, and I know it's been hard to look at me. It's been hard to listen. And these people were hypercritical in the Corinthian church. Let me back up a few years. Paul 
first sent what we sent what we know as 1 Corinthians as a letter. In the fourth chapter, this is the way he describes himself. He said, you may have many tutors, guardians as it were, in Christ, but you have only one Father and I am He. And he was correcting them. And by the way, aren't parents responsible for disciplining their unruly children? If their children are getting out from under their authority, what does a good parent do? That parent addresses the behavior, the attitudes, which are causing disrespect for the father or the mother or both in the family. Paul was not going to sit still for it. Now you might say, well, Paul, he was just egotistical. He wanted to control everything. Well, he's been accused of that and many other things. But what we do know is that's a poor judgment of the Apostle Paul. The Apostle Paul was doing what he knew he needed to do. Now remember, which generation of Christians was he writing to throughout his entire ministry? We have 13 of the 27 New Testament books, all of which had to do with some sort of disorder, with the exception of the Philippian letter, there was some sort of error in thinking or teaching or behaving. But we know that the Apostle Paul was addressing an issue to the first generation of Christians. We talked already this morning about Pentecost. The church was formed on Pentecost when 120 people had been praying fervently for days They had obeyed Jesus. Jesus had said, look, you don't leave Jerusalem until the Holy Spirit falls upon you. When He falls upon you, you shall be My witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the remotest part of the world. And they waited. And there was a mighty rushing wind in the upper room where Jesus had instituted what we call the Lord's Supper. These 120 heard that rushing wind. And when they looked at each other, they saw saw what looked like tongues of fire over their heads. And then as they exited that room under the marching orders of the Holy Spirit, fulfilling the promise of Jesus that when they received the Holy Spirit, they would receive power for effective witness. And they went out into the streets and there were... 3,000 people saved when the Apostle Peter stood and preached what we now know as the Pentecostal sermon. Very, very simple sermon, but incredibly powerful. Arguably the most powerful message that's ever been given. And those 3,000 people were converted. The miracle was that people heard the message in their own language. All these people were Jewish. But they came from all corners of the Roman Empire for the observance of Passover. And many of them had long forgotten the mother tongue of Israel. They had, like people today who migrate to other parts of the world, when they go to those parts, they adapt and adopt to the religion and the customs of that place. So the primary language of most of these people, evidently, was not... Aramaic, or we would say Hebrew, it was not that at all. So here go these people, and they're giving the message, and everyone heard it in their own language, and lo and behold, 3,000 people were saved in one day. 
after this powerful message. And that was the beginning of the church. And it had spread to Corinth through the ministry of the Apostle Paul and his cohorts. And so you see how important it was that Paul the Apostle took the stance which he took in order to preserve this fledgling church and to warn against and confront, I might add, interlopers who would come in and try to destroy the work of the Spirit of God in the formation of that church in Corinth. It's true. Let's go now to verse 13. For if we are beside ourselves, it is for God. If we are of sound mind, it is for you. So these detractors who are influencing people in the Corinthian church because those people were not mature enough to discern between the truth and a lie. And what they were saying about Paul is, hey, don't listen to Paul. He's just a goofball. He doesn't know what he's saying. They were constantly calling Paul's, not only his authority into question, but his understanding of what is really true into question. Verse 14, For the love of Christ controls us, having concluded this, that one died for all, therefore all died. Now who would that be? Who died for all of the believers in Corinth? Jesus, right? He died. And then he goes on to say in verse 15, sounds like at the outset he's double talking here, but he says something that is very important for us and maybe we'll get to it a little later in detail. He died for all that they who live should not no longer live for themselves, but for God who died and rose again on their behalf. Okay, here's the question. How is this goal achieved? This is right where we're living today. How can we achieve this goal? We cannot achieve it through self-effort. In the book of Romans, chapter 8, the Bible says, the mind set on the flesh is death. The mind set on the Spirit, capital S, Holy Spirit, the mind set on the Holy Spirit is life and peace. Because the mind set on the flesh is hostile toward God. So that those who are in the flesh cannot please God. If you and I are in the flesh, that's not talking about in this earth suit which we wear, in our human bodies, it's not talking about that. It's talking about who you are at the very core of your being, who I am in the very core of my being before Christ comes and begins to live and work in my life by His Spirit. Now let me pause just a moment. Let me talk to you about the word flesh as Paul uses it in this passage and other places in Scripture. Flesh is my personality, your personality as redeemed people. People who have been born again by the living and abiding Word of God. My flesh is my personality which has gotten out from under the controlling influence of the Holy Spirit. This could be said differently and equally accurately. That my flesh, when it gets out from con- the control of, the, of Christ's Spirit, I lose the fullness of the Spirit of God. You become filled with the Spirit. 
when you submit yourself fully to the Holy Spirit of God and you receive Him in power into your life. When a person receives Jesus Christ, that person receives the Spirit of God. You might say, wait a minute. Didn't we hear earlier from Luke eleven thirteen that we, knowing that we are evil, know how to give good gifts to our children? How much more does our Father give good gifts to us? We ask for the Holy Spirit and we receive Him. There perhaps are two ways of looking at that. One would be that the Holy Spirit hadn't been given when Jesus gave that statement. Pentecost was yet to come. That could be one answer. But I think a more clear answer is to be found in the fact if you took the time to do the close study, what you would discover is whenever Holy Spirit is preceded by a definite article, I'm getting in the weeds of technicality here, but it's important, the article that is in the language of the New Testament preceding the Holy Spirit, that's talking about the person of the Holy Spirit, receiving the person of the Holy Spirit. But when that is absent, as it is in Luke 11:13, it's talking about the anointing of the Holy Spirit, the fullness of the Holy Spirit. We lose the fullness of the Holy Spirit every time that we get into the flesh. We step out from under the umbrella of the authority of the Holy Spirit. We do what we want to do rather than what He would have us to do. And in that instant, we become people who need a new anointing of the Spirit of God. I am well acquainted with my flesh. Most of the time, I know immediately when I'm in the flesh. I can't say I'm 100% accurate. But what I know is I, when I take control of my life, the Holy Spirit has been marginalized in my life. I have quenched the Holy Spirit of God. That phrase, quenched the Spirit, is found in the book of Ephesians. And it's a word that was ordinarily used to talk about the quenching of a fire, the dousing of a fire, the putting out of a fire. The Holy Spirit is symbolized in part by fire. And we put the Spirit's fire out. Do you know we can ground the Holy Spirit of God by being rebellious in our flesh? Will we do what we want to do rather than what He would have us to do? We grieve the Holy Spirit of God. 1 Thessalonians 5 talks about how we grieve the Spirit of God. I may have those two references backwards, but it's in the Bible. You can find both in the Scripture. 1 Thessalonians 5, I know that's for sure there. And also Ephesians 5. But the, the reality is this, that I get out away from the controlling influence of the Holy Spirit, and I can't please God. The Holy Spirit is God. Do you know that? He's not just some ethereal, mystical being. He is ethereal. He is mystical. But He's God of very God. He is just as much God as God the Father and Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And He doesn't cotton too well with us when we insist upon our own way. We get out from under the controlling influence of the Holy Spirit. Let me try to help you 
a little more if you need a little more help to understand what the flesh is. I'm not assuming I have the capacity to convey it in a way that you would understand it. But this is what I would add to what I've already said about the flesh. First, having said that it's my personality, your personality, out from under the controlling influence of the Holy Spirit. When I'm not filled by the Holy Spirit, controlled by the Holy Spirit, the result is that I'm in the flesh. This concept of the flesh is represented in the ever-growing family of self-hyphenated words in our daily parlance. Self-will, self-determination, self-interest, self-love, self-motivation, self-confidence, self-acclaim, and yes, self-pity, self-hatred. I've only begun to scratch the surface. Anything that centers on self... And that is a good word to put in your memory bank when you think about the word flesh, when you read it in the Scripture. We typically associate that with getting outside the framework of the boundaries which God has established for sexual relations, and certainly that is one of the areas. But it's much broader than that. Do you see this? It's me being self-centered. And that is my tendency. This past week... I got off on a rabbit trail. Every once in a while I do in my mind and heart. And I'm not altogether sure that what I was doing was sinful. I'm sure it became sinful at times. What I was thinking, it was in my mind. Only I and the Lord know what that was, but it was in my mind. And I would keep going, and then I would, the Spirit of God would say to me, come back. At least I was wasting his time because my time is his time. I no longer belong to myself, nor do you, if you know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. You have been bought with a price, the precious blood of Jesus Christ, like a lamb without blemish. And you have gone your own way willfully. I got off on that trail and I got yanked back by the Holy Spirit. And I said, I'm sorry, Holy Spirit, how foolish of me to do that. Waste that time that belongs to you. And I felt better when I did it. When I got back under the control of the Holy Spirit, okay. But you know what? I got on that trail again later. I couldn't believe it. I could believe it, but I really couldn't when I finally was pulled back a second time. A third time I got off on that trail between this time last week And that may be a conservative estimate. But what I do know is that there is this tendency in me called the flesh which wants to do what Mike Woods wants to do without regard for the Holy Spirit or anybody else. And when that happens, you need to understand, you cannot please God, nor can I, when I'm in that framework of thinking and acting So be careful. You are wasting an opportunity that you may never have again in relating to the Lord. Any thinking that has oneself as its focus is self-centered. If not self-effort, what should our focus be? The world's all about self-effort, isn't it? Certainly it is. It's by faith that we have this kind of 
of life that pleases the Lord. Look at verse 7. We walk by faith, not by sight. Faith. What is faith? Well, I can tell you what faith is not. And sometimes when we tell or are told what faith is not, it helps us to really understand what it really is, actually. In the last part of Romans 14, verse 23, this is what the Bible says. Whatever is not of faith is sin. Now pause there and think about that for a moment. Whatever is not of faith is sin. So what am I to do? If I'm going to be a man of faith, what I have to do is exercise great vigilance over my flesh. It's not like I'm a nervous wreck all day, every day. That would be a horrible way to live. It's not like that, but I need to be in touch with the Spirit of God by being filled by the Spirit of God. And what does that mean? It means I have willingly submitted myself in every way I know how to, in every area of my life, to the controlling influence of the Holy Spirit of God. That's what is called the Spirit-filled life. I do that. And therefore, I am walking by faith and not by sight. Allow me to talk for just a moment with you about this metaphor, this figure of speech about walking. How often do we see this in the Bible? It's there a lot, isn't it? Walking, and it's not talking about a physical journey. What's it talking about? It's talking about a spiritual journey. This is not common only to the New Testament. The Old Testament has this metaphor at the same time. Walking is something that suggests possession of life. Dead men don't walk. Only live men do. Live women walk on the physical level. We're talking spiritual here. We know that all of us entered this world without spiritual life. The Bible says you were dead in your trespasses and sin. We know that. But the Bible would indicate to us that as we go through this life, we're going to be giving evidence of walking, which would be evidence of life. If you're not walking in a way that would draw attention in a positive way to Christ and not to yourself, then you might ought to take inventory of your life to determine if you really have Him living in you. Secondly, this idea of walking suggests activity. Lots of times people want to come to a place like this or watch something online or go to a big conference and they just want to sit and soak. You know what I mean? They hear what the teacher or teachers might be giving to them and they love it. They find their minds resonating with it. They think about it after the fact. They talk about it after the fact but they never get around to applying it to their lives. Today might be such a day for someone here. There'll come a moment in our time together where I'm going to challenge you to give Christ's Spirit total control of your life, to re-up in your relationship to Him if you know Him. And the Lord will bless you as a result. This idea also of walking suggests progress. 
That would be the equivalent of growth, growing. The beautiful thing about knowing Christ is that in this life, we will never reach a time when we cannot grow, provided we take our hands off of the controls of our lives and let the Holy Spirit be in control of our lives. And He is the one who causes the growth in our lives. Also, the idea of walking carries with it the idea of persevering, hanging in there, going forward. I'll never forget the first deacon retreat that I was in charge of for a group of deacons. It was my first church. It was the first group of deacons because the church was a church start. And we went up to Cloudcroft. I can't remember exactly where we stayed, but any trip to Cloudcroft, from my perspective, is a good trip. It's a great place to go with brothers and sisters in Christ. And we were talking informally. There were about seven deacons and myself. We were talking informally. And I don't remember exactly how we got to this point, but I remember Fred Harvey. He's with the Lord now. He was easily 15 years older than I. I was in my late 20s. He was in his early to mid-40s. He was a graduate of Dallas Theological Seminary. His degree was one which dwarfed my own theological studies. He'd been a missionary to Mexico. He was a godly man. And in the conversation he said to us, I don't know if he directed it straight to me or to all of the men. I think it was to all of us. He said, the Christian life is not a sprint. It is a marathon. That's what complicates Christian living for us many times. Because we want to grow in spurts, you know. I know we physically grow in spurts. We want to spurt, 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 spurt. You know what I mean? Get a shot of whatever we need to kind of fire us up for the other six days of the week and then come back. Get some more because we need some more. And there's nothing wrong with coming here to worship the Lord, obviously. God wants us to be together. But wouldn't you like to reach a place in your life where you had not perfection, nobody reaches that in this life, but consistency in your walk with the Lord and consistently experience victory in your life over yourself? We talk about sin. Look, let's, let's get off the sin deal. Let's talk about self. That is the issue in your life and my life. If we are not finding the pathway to the Lord and being able to please Him, we know it in our hearts. Look at Hebrews. Hold your place here. Let's go to Hebrews chapter 11, verse 6. Hebrews 11.6 says, Without faith it is impossible to please God. You see how important faith is? This is how we please the Lord. We please the Lord by living by faith. Now why? Let's go a little further. For he who comes to God must believe that he is. We believe that God exists. We believe more than he just is existing, we believe He is the sovereign. He is entitled for our lives, to our lives rather. He is a loving Father. He's also a holy God. And He knows the only way that we can know Him is by placing faith in Him through Jesus Christ. The Bible says in John 1, 12, but as many as received Jesus, 
To them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, but were born of man, of God rather, born of God, born from heaven, born again is the term. And so it's by faith that we become children of God. How can you develop faith? I want to know. I know the answer because God showed this to me. It's not hidden somewhere in the Bible. It's clearly represented in the Bible. It's, the Bible says in Romans ten seventeen, faith comes from hearing and hearing from what? The Word of God or the Word of Christ, depending on your translation. So, if you're not growing in faith, can you please God? No. How do you grow in faith? You commune with the Lord. You spend time with Him. Your faith is developed to the degree that you eagerly come before the Lord and you ask Him to speak to you from the Bible. I've heard people say, I just don't have faith. And the question I quickly ask is, are you in the Word? Are you reading the Word of God? And if the answer is no, I say, why not? You're shooting yourself in the foot spiritually. You're consigning yourself to a life of waste, quite frankly. It's that kind of life because you're living to suit you instead of living to please the Lord. Do you know the last part of this verse is often overlooked in Hebrews 11.6? And we need to think of it together that He, God, is a rewarder of those who seek Him. Do you know God wants to reward you in your life? Are you aware of that? He's that kind of God. Let me ask you who are parents who are here today. Do you ever have just this sudden surge of desire to bless your child or your children? Do you ever do that? Probably. We do that. If we have that tendency toward our human children, how much more does God have that toward us? Where and when... Does this take place? Well, this takes us back to 2 Corinthians chapter 5 for a moment. Verse 10. What does it say? We must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ that each one may be recompensed for his deeds in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. Here is something important to understand. It's a certainty that you and I If we claim to know Christ, we're going to stand before the judgment seat of Christ. Romans 14 talks about it. It calls us the judgment seat of God. Well, Christ is God. And every person will come ultimately before God. It's appointed unto a man once to die. That's when it's going to happen. After I die physically and at the end of time when everything is being wrapped up, when the church is raptured and we're with the Lord, we're all going to be judged in our bodies because we sin through our bodies. But wait a minute. We live to glorify God through these same bodies. And there's going to be a reduction of all of us, probably, as compared to what we could have been and become. Why? Because we're living in the flesh and not in the Spirit of God. We're not trusting the Spirit of God as we ought to trust. The judgment seat of Christ. I've had the privilege to go to Corinth. It's been 
way too long ago, 40 years ago probably now. And I remember going to Corinth and there was the judgment seat. It's called the Bema. The judgment seat. It was a place in Corinth where people would come to orate to espouse their knowledge and impress people. It was a place where the judges of the city of Corinth would render judgments and rule on cases of law. It was also the place where athletes who competed in games that would be similar to the Olympics, where they would win the prize. And actually, it was not they. There was only one person who won the prize. One person. And you know what the prize was? These athletes would go into strict training for nine months, restricting diet and all kinds of things, denying themselves so they could win a laurel wreath, just a wreath that was perishing. But what are we running for? Paul says, run in such a way that you may win. That's what Paul says under inspiration of the Holy Spirit in 1 Corinthians 9. What are we wanting to win Well, a reward, yes, but the bigger reward, actually, is the knowledge that we have done that which would honor the Lord. That's the greatest reward we could receive. We don't know all the deals that are associated with this. We know that as we were led in prayer, our brother and lead elder talked about the crown of life. There are other crowns. But it's this judgment... Now listen carefully, I don't want to be misheard here, is not a judgment of condemnation. Why is that so? If you know Jesus, are you going to be condemned at the end and be one who loses your salvation? Is that true of you? Here's why I say this. Romans 8.1, we know that. There's therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus There's not none, is what it literally says in the original language. None whatsoever. But if that is not a good enough reason for you to say, well, that's the Apostle Paul. Well, all Scripture is God-breathed. All of it. It doesn't matter who the human agent was. It's all from the Holy Spirit. But what we need to know is what Jesus said. Would it matter to you maybe a little more if you know what Jesus said about this? In John 5, 24, he says, Truly, truly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes him who sent me, that would be God the Father, has eternal life and does not come into judgment. Once you have been saved, remember what Jesus says, all that the Father gives to me will come to me. Whoever comes to me will never be thrown away, never be cast off. So once you're in the hand or the fold of Jesus, you are not going to be rejected. But, and this is a very important statement, you do sin after you come to Christ, right? Uh, I know there's not a person in the room who knows Jesus who would say, I've never sinned since I came to Jesus. So how does that work? This evaluation at the judgment seat is not an evaluation of your salvation in terms of your justification, your having been made right with God, something that cannot be pulled away from you. Rather, it's an evaluation of your sanctification, that part of salvation which begins at the moment of your coming to know Jesus when you're made right by the work of Christ and the time you die and go into heaven and you're glorified. And that's a long time sometimes. 
And there's a lot of opportunity to get off the reservation, isn't there? So what we need to understand is this is an evaluation of two things. Keep your place here and go to 1 Corinthians 3 where we read from earlier. This is not a judgment of condemnation, but a judgment of evaluating the quality of our walk with the Lord. Look at verse 11. For no man can lay a foundation other than the one which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now, if any man builds upon the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each man's work will become evident. Let's stop here just a moment. Think about these two kinds of materials. Wood, hay, straw. I'm going in reverse order. Wood, hay, straw. Wood, hay, straw is relatively worthless in comparison to gold, silver, and precious stones. Correct? Now, remember, we all have the same foundation. But some have touched that which would be considered gold, silver, and precious stone, have built their lives out of that kind of precious metals and gems, but also something that's not easily combusted. The wood, hay, and straw, something that comes out of the ground, these jewels and minerals are separate from the ground, and they are much more valuable. And what we need to understand is how do we live this way? Here's how we do it. We looked at verse 15 of 2 Corinthians 5, and in, this is what it says. People who do not live for themselves. That would be a spirit-filled man or woman, wouldn't it? We live for ourselves, then we're building out of wood, hay, and straw. Now, let's, if we live in dependence upon the Holy Spirit, what are we building out of? Something that lasts and is incredibly valuable beyond our imagination. Let's pick up in the middle of 13. For the day will show it. What day is that? The judgment seat of Christ. Because it is to be revealed with fire, and the fire itself will test the quality of each man's work. There's the idea. The quality of my life, my work, I'm going to receive recompense based on 2 Corinthians 5.10. Recompense based on whether I did good or bad. By the way, the word bad is not the common word for bad or evil in the New Testament. It's a word which carries with it, among other ideas, worthless. That which is worthless. Our lives are worthless. Wouldn't it be sad to get to the end of your life, be raptured with others who know Jesus, and stand before the judgment seat of Christ? Wouldn't it be terrible that all of that got burned up because you insisted upon living for yourself? instead of trusting in the Lord. What a waste. All of us need to take inventory of our lives and ask this question, am I living in dependence upon the Holy Spirit or am I only using Him when I need Him? Is He the Lord of your life? And by the way, in First, Second Corinthians chapter 3, the Bible calls the Spirit the spirit of liberty. He sets us free. A lot of people think, I can just do anything I want to. I beg your pardon. You are set free to do what He wants you to do, which is that which will build you up, will 
build a reward for you in heaven, but will also glorify him and set a lot of other people free. People who live for themselves and think they're living the free life in Christ, they need to think again. It's very dangerous to not live in consistency with the Lord in that way. Well, let's read a little further in this passage of Scripture. If any man's work, 1 Corinthians 3.14, which he has built upon, it remains, he shall receive a reward. If any man's work is burned up, he shall suffer loss, but he himself shall be saved, yet is through fire. I repeat, once you know Jesus Christ, he has paid the price, one you could never have paid if you lived a million lives for your sin. It's all his doing. We owe him an immeasurable debt that we could not pay. But he paid it for us. What Do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and you are not your own? You have been bought with a price, the precious blood of Jesus Christ, perfect Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is the gospel. This is a powerful gospel. And it makes your life worth living. I'm going back now to something I said at the beginning. There is only one goal which matters. What is it? To please the Lord. That's it. And if you do that, all the other goals that you may have for your life will be properly ordered. They will be things which will honor the Lord in the accomplishment of them. And what's going to happen is you will have done them in His power, not your power. Paul says, imitate me as I imitate Christ. Many people have said, well, that's audacious, isn't it? That's, that's just a bragging statement. It's Scripture. And he gave a great illustration of this in his life. Imitate me as I imitate Christ. Paul says in Romans 15, 18, I will not presume to speak about anything except what Christ has done through me. We have died to ourselves when we come to Christ. When Christ calls a person to follow him, as Dietrich Bonhoeffer said, he bids that person to come and die. Die to your own will. Die to your own preferences in favor of yielding your life to the Lord. That's it. What happens is when we imitate Paul, we'll be imitating Jesus. I want you to see this with your own eyes rather than quote it. Go to John chapter 8. Just a moment. John chapter 8. We're going to look at verses 28 and 29. These are awesome. All the words of Jesus are. But this speaks so clearly to what this message is about. John 8, 28 says, Jesus therefore said, When you lift up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am He, and I do nothing on my own initiative, but I speak these things as the Father taught me. Now, how did Jesus live? Is Jesus God? The Word became flesh, speaking of Jesus, and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory, glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. And earlier in that same section, the Scripture says, In the beginning was the Word, namely Jesus. The Word was with God. Jesus and the Word was God, and I might add, remains God forever. Once God, always God. 
And so here we are. We have God saying, God in the flesh. And what does he say? I don't do anything unless I see the Father doing it. And I don't say anything unless I hear the Father saying it. Does your life approximate that at all? Can it approximate that? It can. Why? Because of His fullness, I'm talking about the fullness of Jesus Christ, we have all received, is what the Bible says in John 1, and grace upon grace. We need so much grace, don't we? Because we're apt to fall and get out on a ditch, go on a rabbit trail. And what we need to do is the moment we become conscious of that, we come to the Lord and we say, Lord, I have sinned against you. And I need to ask you to help me get back in fellowship. I have not lost my relationship with the Father when I sin. I have, however, lost fellowship with Him because my sin, no matter whether I committed prior to coming to Jesus or after coming to Jesus, it separates me from God. So I need to deal ruthlessly with attitudes and actions in my life which are sinful. And the result is that... I exhale, I'm borrowing an illustration from the founder of Campus Crusade with Christ, now known as Crew, Bill Bright. He said, we need to practice spiritual breathing. Just like we breathe out carbon dioxide, or else we will be poisoned by it. But not only that, what do we do? We breathe in oxygen. And that would be equivalent, according to the illustration of Mr. Bright, that would be the equivalent of asking the Holy Spirit to take control of me. Anoint me again, Lord. Fill me. Call it what you will. But all those terms are used in Scripture. And what he does, he does. Aren't you glad for your justification? And you might say, well, what is that, Mike? That you were made right by God through the work of Jesus Christ. And that alone. Look at verse 29 of chapter 8 of John. And he who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone, for I always do the things that are pleasing to him. I love that, don't you? Do you feel lonely at times in your life? Circumstances have become such that you do feel alone. There may be some people around you, but you feel so lonely. Look, if Jesus is with you, He eliminates such loneliness in your heart. The second thing that will determine our motivation, I mean, will be measured by, it's our quality of life, and that boils down to depending on the Lord for everything in our lives. And then also, what is our motivation in 1 Corinthians 4, 5, the Bible talks about this. We won't read it, but jot it down and look at it. 1 Corinthians 4, 5 talks about how we will be evaluated by our motives. We don't even know what our motives are. In fact, in that same section in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 4, Paul says, I don't know of anything against me, but that doesn't mean it's not there. I'm not going to worry about it. I'm going to confess sin that I'm aware of and get that behind me and let the Spirit of God control me. And then it'll all be sorted out at the judgment seat of Christ. It will. He'll take care of it. Motives? Well, going back to 2 Corinthians 5, we'll look rather briefly here. 2 Corinthians 5. He talks about the fear of the Lord. 
Look at verse 11. Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade men. So, fearing God is not an Old Testament concept alone. Certainly it's there. But fearing God is something that's relevant to New Testament believers, to believers, period. Fearing God. Also, the love of Christ controlled him, he says in this passage. Look at verse 14 of 2 Corinthians 5. The love of Christ controls us, having concluded this, that one died for all, therefore all died, and he died for all, that they who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died and rose again on their behalf. The love of Christ. I wish we had a lot of time to talk about this. But in essence, what it simply means that we love Christ and God the Father and God the Holy Spirit because they first loved us. You and I did not take the first step toward the Lord. You might think, I found Christ, I found him. Forget about it. He found you. No man seeks God, that's what the Bible says in Romans chapter 3. He came hunting for you. This is what Jesus says about himself. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save that which is lost. That's love. Thinking about what he put up with in order to accomplish that mission. Amazing. Love makes obedience easy, frankly. It's the delight of love that makes us do what the loved one desires. Perhaps you remember the movie Princess Bride. And it's about Princess Buttercup, I think that was her name. And then Westley, who was her would-be lover. They did end up marrying. You remember that silly scene. But what would he say? Whenever Buttercup would say something to Westley, three words every time, as you wish. This is the way a spirit-led person lives, saying to the Lord, as you wish. Wish. Whatever, Lord. Why? Because we know the magnitude of His love. We're beginning, we don't know all of it, we're beginning to know as we walk with Him by faith, we grow in the understanding of who He is and how He is loved. We also know He's holy. That's why we fear Him. The two are not mutually exclusive, they're part of who He is. Both He is that. And this love of Christ is seen in living for Christ. Jesus says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. And in that context, he's defined what he was thinking of because he says just a few verses before that, he says, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. Nothing makes a human parent quite as happy as his or her children loving each other. Am I right, parents? Loving each other. Genuinely loving each other. It's such a joy. If that's true of us, think about what it is to God the Father. And it's the final evidence, really, that you are a Christian and I'm a Christian. If we don't love our brother whom we seem, see how can we love God whom we have not seen, is what the Bible says. The clearest evidence of understanding God's love is our view of others, really. Position, race, gender, wealth, no longer matter when you know that you have been chosen 
by God in Christ before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in His sight. You have been adopted as a child into the family of God by virtue. This is one of the reasons it's important for us to hang out together so we can be with our brothers and sisters in Christ and love them. Tell them we love them. Show that we love them. All people, when you come to know the love of God, are seen as people of infinite worth because they are made in the image of God. And we become, because we fear the Lord, as Paul writes in verse 11 of 2 Corinthians 5, we want to persuade people to come and enjoy this relationship. Would you bow your head? Would you say that you're a person who is walking in the Spirit as opposed to walking in the flesh today? The call on each of our lives is to walk according to the Spirit, to trust in the Holy Spirit. It begins with confessing any known sin. I'm going to ask you to pray this prayer, and it's actually the words of David found in the 19th Psalm, where David prayed to the Father. He said, Lord, reveal my hidden faults to me. Would you be open and daring enough to say to Jesus, Lord, show me some things in my life that are not in keeping with your spirit. Please reveal those to me. Would you take a moment just to ask that to the Lord? Do you have the courage to do that? He has pinpointed maybe one or more things in your life that are not compatible with the Holy Spirit. So say to Holy Spirit, to God the Father and Jesus, say, Lord, please forgive me. I want to yield myself to you today. I want to give myself to you now in a new way. I ask you, Holy Spirit, to fill my heart, fill my life so that I no longer will live for me primarily, but for you and for others. Thank you, Lord, for your promise that if we do confess our sins, you will show mercy to us. And you will take control of our lives. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. God bless you.